what later the writer of Hebrews describes. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. Moses was a prophet. Elijah, too. Both had much to say. But now the last days are upon us. And when the Son, heir of all things, maker of the universe, speaks, then all who have ears, Moses and Elijah among them, strike one posture only. They listen, and they behold. Peter, James, and John witness the entire spectacle, with borderline comical results. Peter, rash, brash, scared, spitless, offers to build tabernacles for the three holy men. The fishermen, aspires to carpentry, which is its own kind of tribute. Various interpretations of this abound, but best to stick with Mark's gloss on it, inserted parenthetically. He, Peter, did not know what to say. They were so frightened. The things we say when we don't know what to say. The things we say in fear and shame and ignorance. If every idle word is written down, as we're told they are, then somewhere in heaven there must be a book of sayings that compiles all this. Ridiculous things holy men have said through the ages, a compendium of terrible gaffes and stupid remarks at sacred moments. Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Aaron, Saul and David, Jonah and Jeremiah, and countless others would make the final edit. I'd read it, if only because I'm sure I'd be quoted extensively myself. Back to Mark chapter 9. I love this story, the whole thing, not least because it's a template for my own encounters with the majestic glory. It evokes the moments of encounter I've had with Christ, when I'm left speechless or else uttering gibberish, terrified, awestruck, renewed in my heart's longing for the King and His kingdom, willing to do something, anything, even a foolish thing, to honor and enshrine the moment. I love that. According to Hebrews, all who follow Christ get to go up the mountain to behold for themselves the majestic glory. It's not just for a few. Not anymore. But what I don't love is that, almost always, what awaits us on the downside of the mountain is similar to what awaited Jesus and Peter and James and John on the downside of their mountain. Indeed, similar to what Moses met on the downside of his mountaintop encounter with God. Best to quote the story in full. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet them. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. 
He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone into